today, let's talk about this new covenant that we introduced from Jeremiah 31. And we're going to be over in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 today. Let me tell you a little bit about my Uncle Earl. I don't think anybody knows my Uncle Earl or knew my Uncle Earl. Earl grew up in Wichita Falls or spent some time in Wichita Falls. Um, he, uh, in the Air Force, he was there, I know certainly. Earl was one of the biggest guys I've ever known. He was a, a field superintendent for Phillips Petroleum for, for his lifetime. And uh, Earl, I don't know if his olfactory uh, uh, capabilities were, were wanting or what, but, but when, my, when my mother would make dressing on Thanksgiving, she always had a special pan of it for Earl because she had to double the sage or triple it and double the pepper. And yet, when I would watch Earl at the Thanksgiving table, he always had a, not a pepper shaker that wouldn't come out quick enough. He had the pepper box, you know, the, the square. So he really liked it kind of spicy. So Earl had his own thing of dressing. So when I smell sage, I think of Uncle Earl. And I think of Thanksgiving's uh, as I was growing up as a kid. What is it for you? Is it, um, is it when you smell hot cider? Um, when you're outside and you, you feel leaves, you kind of hear leaves crunch under your feet. Maybe uh, you smell a pumpkin pie. Um, what is it? that reminds you of things. Maybe it's um, uh, Rhonda burned a candle yesterday that, was, um, that had uh, kind of some um, uh, evergreen. And it was like, okay, it's, Christmas is coming. You know what I mean? It kind of reminds you of those things. Uh, our senses cause us to remember things. Uh, and they say that the sense of smell is particularly good at eliciting memories. Now, you know that I work from the premise that Jesus was the smartest man to ever walk the planet. So when he's getting ready to leave this earth and he wants to imprint on the disciples' minds something that they will never forget, he does something that involves food. And you and I get to still do that and remember. And we're going to talk about that here today in 1 Corinthians 11. Memories are triggered by our senses so that we will never forget what Jesus has done. He's given us a sensory experience that helps us to remember. Now let me give you a little background on the group that originally got this letter. Corinthians, uh, the church in Corinth, was started by Paul. It was planted by Paul. In many ways, he was a missionary for his life, and in many ways, he was, he was a church planter. Um, in the early 50s, AD 50s, um, barely 20 years or so after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, he meets these Corinthian people on one of his trips and uh, starts this church. Now, Corinth wasn't a center of culture like Athens, Greece was, but it was a city of hardworking folks from many backgrounds. There was a Jewish community there, and it was there in that Jewish community that, that Paul met uh, some friends who kind of shared his, um, his commitment and also his uh, kind of work ethic 
Their name, it was a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. Somebody came to me after last week when I said, uh, or a couple weeks ago when I said, who wrote the book of Hebrews, and said they wondered if it was Priscilla, which would explain why it didn't bear her name, because it's just cultural. They wouldn't have put a woman's name on a book even if she wrote it. Um, so that's interesting hypothesis. Haven't really thought about that one a whole lot. But it was here in Corinth that he meets them. Now, this church, okay, had lots of issues. Let me mention a few of them. Factionalism, immorality, rivalry, divorce, false doctrine, uh, all kinds of things that they dealt with. Despite all that, this place and this church had a huge place in, in the Apostle Paul's heart. He loved them as much as anybody else he'd ever worked with. He started the congregation. He saw it through its birth pains. He left and returned for at least one visit, wrote two substantial letters to help the church sort out its problems. Now, at the heart of the problem in Corinth was a disrespect that some members had for other members. So think about a church that just doesn't get along. There are factions that don't get along with other factions. This lack, this problem here, or lack of concern for each other, caused a crisis in the way that they celebrated the Lord's Supper. I find it really interesting. I've been in lots of churches over my life, and some that didn't get along all that well. But I don't ever remember it being a problem when we came to the Lord's table. But it was in Corinth, kind of an issue. So he's going to deal with it here. Um, the Corinthian church probably chose to meet on Saturday evening, we think. The Lord's Day, Sunday, actually began with sundown on Friday. I'm sorry. Uh, the Sabbath begins with sundown on Friday, ends with sundown on Saturday. We think that they may have met on Saturday evening, because there's so many working people here in this particular church, that uh, it may be that uh, a lot of them worked, some even were slaves, and they couldn't gather during the day. So as they gathered week by week on Sunday, which may have been Saturday night actually, when they gathered, they celebrated the Lord's Supper week by week, every week. It was part of their worship service every week. Maybe you grew up in a church that celebrated the Lord's Supper every week. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But that celebration was the central part of their time together. Um, and it was central and it was done weekly. And therefore, Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 11 are really, really important. Not only to them, but to you and me. And last, the Corinthian Lord's Supper was in the context of a fellowship meal. Sometimes we call this an agape meal. Uh, they would come together and have kind of a, a, a potluck dinner each time they came together. Um, so when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they would use common elements. There would be wine at the table. They would use that. There would be bread at the table. And they would use that. Apparently, the meal began, uh, the agape meal began before everyone arrived, and sometimes there was no food left by the time some of the people who had to work arrived. So, they produced, this produced kind of this awkward atmosphere of disrespect, which we'll deal with today, which the passage deals with today. The message of unity here 
should have been at the core of remembering Christ at least in the celebration of Holy Communion. And yet they'd even lost their way there. So that's where we're going to start. Steve Blair, can I get you to kick us off by starting uh, chapter 11, verse 23 begins it, and we'll, st we'll stop at verse 26. folks to find some scriptures so we'll be be ready to go when we get there who will get um uh, it's not on your outline so don't let me confuse you galatians 1 12 galatians 1 12 thank you cindy uh exodus 12 39 i need somebody to get thank you sally uh john 6 51 thank you julie and then jeremiah 31 we're going to read the passage that we used last week from 31 to 34 Jeremiah 31. Thank you, Karen. Okay. Now, it's interesting that Paul says something, and I've always found it kind of intriguing, although I really don't have the answer. Paul says, what I'm going to share with you, I received from the Lord Jesus. Now, I've always, I would always assume, but kind of by naturally, that what Paul did, and by the way, this is when we train pastors to do Holy Communion, this is the passage we use. We don't use one of the Gospels typically, although you can use that, but it's just more complete here. Paul gives some great instructional material here, and he says he got it from Jesus. We don't know when, but we can trust that he did somehow get this training from Jesus. He says, um, uh, it's kind of, kind of, that's the case. Now, Cindy, are you the one that got Galatians 1.12? He talks about this in Galatians 1. interesting there is another place where he says there's some training that he received directly from Jesus himself now again we don't know the whole story behind that but he's going to say here as he begins to train them about what ought to be done as we celebrate the most holy moments together in, in holy communion he's going to say okay in case you're wondering I got this from Jesus okay he wasn't at the Lord's Supper the original uh, in the original upper room on the night before Jesus died but he got all this detail, he says, from Jesus. Now, this celebration, this remembrance, was never intended to be elaborate. It became elaborate over the centuries. It never was intended to be elaborate, but it was intended to be simple, using simple table elements. That's what you put in your first blank there, okay? What Jesus led us to do, he just takes common things from the table, bread and wine in this case. And he uses them to bring a memory. And he really, am I right when I, when I think of, even when I invoke bread and wine or the bread and the cup, when I say those things together, don't you automatically remember Holy Communion? It's just kind of part of our nomenclature in the church. 
So he has, he's done a good job. The, the Lord did a great job of imprinting this on our memory as we have done this over the centuries. But he uses very simple things to do this. Isn't it interesting that the Lord can take very common things and make them holy? Very, very common things, and it makes them holy. Okay, now look at verse 24. There's a word here, an expression that's used, okay? Um, he's going to say, uh, and by the way, I think it's really important for us. This is, I was loving the fact that I got to this point in this study on Thanksgiving weekend. Um, so, I, Because I think, why would we talk about this today? Here's why. Look at verse 24. When he had given thanks, that phrase, given thanks, actually is a single word in Greek, eucharistia, or eucharistio. You ever, were you ever part of a church where they would talk about the Lord's Supper being the Eucharist? That's where they get it. Uh, this was used technically, but it literally means, the Eucharist means to give thanks. Interesting, on this weekend of the year that we deal with this. When a Jew ate unleavened bread, they remembered. They didn't eat unleavened bread on a normal, in a normal meal. They ate it here, and they would remember. Uh, like my Uncle Earl's sage-laden dressing. It would cause a memory. Unleavened bread didn't smell like leavened bread. It didn't taste like leavened bread. Exodus 12, 39. Who was it that got that one? Thank you, Sally. The dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for Alright, so Exodus tells us about the first use of this unleavened bread uh, had to do with being in a hurry as the exodus was taking place, leaving uh, Egypt, leaving slavery on that first Passover night. Don't take the time to let your bread rise. Girls, did you do any of this this week? Did you have to let bread rise? I did a little deal and I didn't do very well with it. I, you know, I made, I made some frozen rolls, but they were the kind that you got to put out and it, Talk about inexacting science. It said three to five hours. Who can go with that? I want to know it's three hours and 45 minutes or four hours and 15 minutes. But so you put them out for three to five. Go to Ingrid's? So I put them out. I thought, okay, it'll be my luck that at, at, at noon, when we're going to eat or thereabout, they won't be done yet. They won't be risen yet. So I gave them five hours they were big as a balloon by the time I got. <laughs> I guess they're okay. Anyway. So I know I'm going to get all kinds of emails saying, here's what you really ought to do. Like Louise says, go to Ingrid's. Okay. Anyway. They didn't use yeast. And when they ate unleavened bread, they remembered that original bread. When they smelled it, 
I remember. Now, in John 6, Jesus is going to take that image and he's going to make it new. How insightful is he? He's going to take that image and he's going to turn it on its head and say, remember that bread? Who's got John 6, 51? Thank you, Julie. Now, he said this long before the Last Supper. I am the bread of life. Fast forward to that first Maundy Thursday in the upper room with the 12 disciples, and he hands them, but as he hands them the unleavened bread, because they were in the middle of the Passover celebration, he breaks it and says, this is my body, which will be broken for you. You see how he changes it to a new remembrance? So if they, their entire lives, and these men were in their 20s and 30s, if their entire lives, every Passover had smelled unleavened bread and it brought them the remembrance of what my dad and my grandpappy and my great-great-grandpappy told me about release from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Every time I smelled that, it reminded me of that important event. Jesus says, now, henceforth, my broken flesh is going to bring you a different kind of freedom from bondage. And he says, don't forget it. When you smell the bread, you'll remember now, what about the wine? Let's go to the next verse. All right, let's go to the next verse. He uses the cup here. I think it's really beautiful. He uses the cup here. Let me, let me read verse 25 to you again. By the way, if your Bible's like mine, even though this is in the middle of the Gospels, uh, the words that are used are in red. Does that come up on your... I'm good. I didn't know if it did that on a on a... Using you version, what do you use, Ellie? I'm glad to see that because it really helps me to know, okay, Paul is quoting Jesus here. He's got a chartreuse, but it's a different color, okay? All right. Now, he's going to say here, look at verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The remembrance here is blood, a blood covenant, a covenant initiated by blood. Now, we read last week about a new covenant. You remember that? Okay. Um, who's got Jeremiah 31? Karen, read 31 down to 34, would you please? I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds 
You remember this last week? Jeremiah says, there's a new day coming. There's a new covenant coming. In your blanks here, you can put, the, the Lord uses here the word covenant and the word testament. Both of them are important. Both of them kind of legal words. But that word covenant as it's used here would hearken back to what Jeremiah has promised. And Jesus says in uh, on that First Monday Thursday evening in the upper room, he says, the new covenant is here and it's here in my blood. Many of you know I've been reading a book about Martin Luther. I just thought it was kind of a good thing to do. Consider it was 500 years ago that the Reformation began, you know. And uh, Eric Metaxas has written this incredible book on... Um, on uh, Martin Luther, and I'm really enjoying working through it. But as I began to work through it, one of the things that was going on in the Middle Ages uh, in Martin Luther's day is, um, especially in, in Wittenberg, where he lived, um, there, was, uh, there were people who collected what they would call relics uh, from uh, the early centuries, certainly from Jesus' day. And one particular relic in, Witt in Wittenberg that, that was such a big deal was they claimed to have, by relics, all kinds of things, okay, all kinds of stuff. Uh, 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 locks of Mary's hair, locks of Jesus' hair, uh, locks of Mary's mother's hair, okay, all that, you know, splinters from the cross, all that kind of thing. But one of the things they had in Wittenberg that was kind of a big deal is they claimed to have a thorn from the crown of thorns. Now, if you extrapolate this, okay, if they really had one, then that would mean it would have a precious drop of blood on it. The most precious blood ever. Sinless blood. Jesus says here, the blood, and he, he kind of, if, if he makes the broken bread his body, he then makes the shed blood, the, the, the wine in the cup. He says, this represents, this is the new covenant in my blood. If that's the case, then what we're to remember here, I think, forgiveness. The new remembrance here is, and, and I got to think about this every time I take Holy Communion. I kind of wish we were doing this in, in, in service today. I know they do it every Sunday in the chapel, but when I hold that cup in my hand, The words that ought to be across my lips are, I'm forgiven. If the broken body should make me say, thank you for going to the cross for me, then the shed blood ought to remind me to say, I'm forgiven. The new covenant in my blood. Remember, Jeremiah said, you know what? You're not going to have to pay for your daddy's sins. You're not going to have to pay for grandpa's sins. You're not going to have to pay for your great-grandpa's sin. Everybody would be responsible for their own. You remember that? 
the new covenant. And here Jesus says, this is the new covenant. You're forgiven. With every drop of my precious blood, he says that. Well, then, in verse 26, the meal of remembrance also includes here a period of anticipation. That's interesting. As I read verse 26, um, some of us get really hung up on how often you should celebrate communion. Some groups feel like every time we come together, we need to celebrate Holy Communion. They did that in the, in the first centuries, okay? They did that certainly in the very first century, right after um, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Every time they came together, they celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about that a little more here in just a minute as we look at the next section. But if you'll notice verse 26, Jesus doesn't really say, and Paul doesn't say how often. He does say how long. Catch that? Uh, the meal of remembrance includes a period of anticipation. I'm looking forward to what? To Jesus' return. And he says, he doesn't say, every time you come together to do this, he doesn't say, you know, you got to do this only on the first Sunday of the month. Okay, we do that. That's what we do here. He just says, as often as you do it. You catch that? Anytime you do this, anytime you bring this remembrance, you're remembering my death until what? Until he comes back. That's the important part. We will continue to do this until Jesus returns. We will, it doesn't tell us how often. It does tell us how long until he returns. So we continue to do that. Now, let's, let's go ahead. Let's work ahead a little bit here. I want us to go to verse 27. Would somebody go to verse 27 and read down through 34? We've got about 10 minutes. I think I can get us through this. Now, what, what you want to catch here is Paul goes from telling about what we do to then talking about some distortions. Um, the whole practice in the Corinthian church has been distorted. So he's going to give us some implications here, beginning from verse 27, for new, this new remembrance participants. For those of us who are doing this new kind of remembrance, here's what to do and here's one, what not to do. Now, what is happening here? By the time they celebrated the Lord's Supper in these, these weekly gatherings, by the time they, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, the ones who got there early, many of them were drunk by that time, according to Paul. The ones who came late because they had to work were starving, and there was nothing left. And Paul just says, come on, guys, you know better than this. Uh, he's kind of going after this whole thing of, of, 
um, of what they're doing to each other. And so he uses a word here in verse 27 that I think is really important. Whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. So that word unworthy. Now what I've got to catch here, and here's what I want you to write in your, in your outline here. There's a difference between celebrating the meal worthy. Can I tell you this? None of us come to the table worthy. None of us come to the table worthy. But that's not the word Paul uses. That's an adjective. He uses an adverb. Unworthily. None of us come to the table worthy. But we better come to the table worthily. We need to be clear here. Whatever we do when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need to do worthily. And there's some things that I ought to do that help me do that. Now, if you read on here, uh, we're going to hear. Now, let me, let me give you some indication here what they were doing that was, that was unworthily done. I'm going to go to verse 17. I'm going to catch kind of earlier in this chapter. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and the other is drunk. Catch that? What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this manner? I will not praise you. So the, you kind of get that idea. They were doing this unworthily. So in verse 28 and 29, the issue is, the key here is I better do some self-examination. I think for them as well as for you and me, I've got to recognize that there are no VIP seats at the Lord's table. <laughs> you know, you pay a little extra and you get a seat at the table and sit on the second row. No. Uh, there are no, I've, I've got to come to the table. There, there's, no, there's no privileged diners, but we've all got to come worthily. And I, I would think the two words that kind of come to my mind is I've got to come in humility and I must come in thankfulness. Again, what a great weekend for us to deal with this. I've got to come in humility, and I've got to come in thankfulness. It's interesting, in verse 30, he kind of goes on to say that this, this dysfunction has resulted in illness. This rift has caused some pain in the body. It's caused some illness to some people, even death. This atmosphere of kind of hostility that's been kind of hanging over the church has caused some of them to get sick. I find that really interesting. Don't, don't, please don't understand, help me, help you understand here. This is not, okay, I come unworthily to the table and I take the elements and the elements made me sick. That's not what he's dealing with. He's dealing with something overriding this attitude, this cancer overriding this church has made a lot of them sick. And so he says, you need to self-examine. This kind of self-judgment, verse 31 and 32 should save us from the Lord's chastening. What I would just say about this is 
don't wait until Jesus returns to do a self-inventory. <laughs> Especially in terms of relationships, which is the overarching issue here. Don't wait till Jesus comes back. To... Rhonda, I began to think about this, some of the stuff that you and I are kind of dealing with. And I began to think about some relationships that just need to be repaired. And I'm realizing, I don't want to wait till Jesus comes to make that right. That's what he's saying, verse 30. Okay, let me finish Verse 33 and 34 give us a couple of simple directives here. It says, so then, I love that. So then, so otherwise, okay, I'm going to distill this. My brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that you'll not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. So the idea here is a couple of simple directives here that you and I need to understand in their day so that we make an application in our day, okay? Wait, number one, wait until everyone arrives. They ought to wait till everybody arrives before beginning. A lot of them are not able to come until their work is done, so be patient with them. Now, I got a thing going on that I'm having to check in my own life. A lot of times I eat very little for breakfast, um, sometimes nothing except coffee through the morning. And then I'll have maybe a salad for lunch so that by the time I get home in the evening, I'm ravenous. That's not a good thing. Especially when my dearly beloved takes a while to fix her own plate. She's so good to me, knowing that I'm ravenous, she will set a plate in front of me you know that feeling? Like, oh. <laughs> and it may take 10 minutes for her to sit down. And I'm just like, the smell of this is killing me. And so what I've had to do lately is to say, okay, I am not. Uh, sometimes I don't even sit at the table. She's at the table because I don't want to. Uh, honestly, guys, I, I'm not proud of this. There have been days when I'm finished before she sits down. I need to be more patient, and so I'm working on that. Wait till everyone arrives. And then the second thing he says here, you may need to eat at home. If, if it's going to come in the way of you uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. So I just wrote in my notes, this is crazy, but it, he, may, he may be saying here, get a snack. Get a snack. By the way, we believe, and history will bear this out, we believe by the end of the first century, they had dropped the agape meal. They didn't do that anymore because there were just so many abuses of it. I think that's really sad. They, they never dropped the Lord's Supper, but they dropped the other part of the meal. They just thought, okay, this isn't working. That's kind of a sad loss, I think. So, let me tell you what to do with... Thanksgiving leftover turkey. You ready? Here's some advice, okay? First of all, you know, because it's kind of dangerous to reheat turkey. So here, here we go. Here's what you do. You take your Thanksgiving turkey, turkey and you carefully wrap the turkey leftovers in foil, making sure they're well sealed. Put them in a foil pan, go to the door, and throw them in the dumpster. I guarantee you won't get sick if you do that. Don't you agree, Dora? Okay. Uh, you know. 
And you can do something else, but that's one way to do it. It's vital that you and I understand what Paul is dealing with here and what Jesus is dealing with here. It is important that we eucharistia. It is important that we give thanks. This is a new remembrance. Jesus' death makes forgiveness possible. And everybody can come to the table. That includes me. And that includes you.